We hope you are enjoying our expanded podcast schedule. For the month of July, we have something new for our members. Each month, members who successfully answer our bonus content quiz will be entered for a chance to win a pair of AirPods Pro. To participate, you must have access to the bonus sections of the podcasts. Members also receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of July, you'll receive 50% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code fireworks at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code fireworks. Thank you for your support. I'm Zoe Weinberg, and this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're joined by April Arnold. April has over a decade of experience in arms control and nonproliferation implementation as a contractor for the Department of Defense and the Department of Energy. She was a 2022 Aspen Rising Leader and a board fellow for the 2021-2023 Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. April, welcome to the show. Hello. How are you? So, April, this is a little bit unusual, um, you know, because this podcast usually isn't, uh, you know, reporting on contemporaneous events. But you both of us just spent the last week at the Aspen Security Forum, which is an annual gathering of foreign policy and national security uh, policymakers, researchers uh, and observers. Uh can you tell us some of the highlights from this week's conference, what your big takeaways were, what, what themes, you know, kept surfacing throughout the sessions? Yeah, sure. So um, it's always wild. This is my second time going under the Rising Leader banner. Um, and each time it's a wild experience, primarily because you're being fed with a fire hose. And um, you kind of have to pick and choose which ones you're going to fully engage on and, um kind of come back and take notes on the other stuff. So um, I would say the highlights that I had were Mana Kajuma, the National Security Advisor of Kenya. Um, I don't know much about Kenya. And so just hearing her talk about um, her viewpoint, as well as uh, Kenya's viewpoint on many of the subject matters um, was really interesting, but she was also just a really dynamic speaker. She could touch on a lot of things. And you could just tell she was um, incredibly just articulate on many of the subjects and could speak from many angles. Um, and she was just a fun speaker to listen to. And so she was, I think, the first or second speaker and had set a really high bar that I'm not sure many of the other panelists quite met up to. So she was probably one of my favorites. Um, and then, granted, this is going to be colored by my preferences, but I also like the, the critical mineral panel and um, hearing, particularly from Heidi Heidkamp, um, about the the need and involvement for community um, and local communities to address many of the problems we're facing with this. Um, one, I completely agree, but two, just hearing sort of, you know, someone at, at her level, um, you know, speak to the need for just small local towns and cities um, was encouraging as I kind of go about my work. 
That's awesome. I do want to get into critical minerals, but I will say that I agree with you that Monica Juma, uh, who's the National Security Advisor of Kenya, uh, was was fantastic. And as somebody who um, lived in Kenya uh, for for a while, from 2015 to 2016, uh, it was interesting to hear how some of the national security challenges, especially around counterterrorism, have evolved in the years since. So uh, for me, that was also very interesting. But I want to um, get back now for a second to critical minerals. Back up for a second. For somebody, you know, for folks who are maybe not following this issue, like, what exactly do critical minerals have to do with national security? Why, you know, why would people be talking about this at the Aspen Security Forum? Like, start from the beginning. Okay. Um, if you just think about it, um, new clean energy requires new technologies. New technologies require different types of materials, which puts stresses on uh, the supply and demand of, of those materials. Uh, materials, including, you know, it can be copper, lithium, um, all the way to um, a group of, of minerals that I like looking at, which is rare earth. And right now, uh, much of that is supplied outside of the United States with particular focus on the supply coming from China. And that's piqued a lot of people's interests. And as we make this transition and we're looking, okay, at these supplies, we're also no noticing they have other applications um, for technologies in defense. And so as we kind of zero in on them, we're starting to think, okay, where are we vulnerable in these areas? And kind of just being someone who likes to play in dirt <laughs> and play outside, um, it naturally caught my attention because I do like the environmental sciences. And so it was a, a natural um, fit as far as interests go. Got it. What what originally sparked your interest in, in national security and defense policy? Um, pretty simple. When I was in college, um, I've always been fascinated by all things international. It could be global music from all over the world, um, foods, uh, different cultures, um, experiences. And I wanted to study that further, and I did not want to study math. <laughs> so I just kind of uh, focused on international relations. And then there was one class I took uh, with a professor, Dr. Weinert at University of Delaware, where he um, talks about international treaties and international organizations. And that caught my interest. And I kind of just wanted to know what does working at a, on a treaty at the ground level look like? And somehow I managed to find a job doing just that right after college or right after undergraduate, working on the Chemical Weapons Convention. And over the next 10 years, I had started just kind of acquiring other treaties in my portfolio and working on them as well. Got it. And so you're and you're now, um, you know, getting a master's degree in sustainable energy. You work on nuclear policy. Obviously, these are all important topics that are under the larger kind of energy umbrella. But I guess I often think about people who work on nuclear proliferation as being in a pretty different, you know, in a different domain than people who are working on climate change as a driver of national security or climate security, you know, as a threat. Can you connect the dots there for me? Like, are these are these two sides of a of a similar coin, or or are these kind of two disparate interests with very different types of people working on them? Like how how would you kind of configure this landscape for us? Um, it's been interesting to see over the past, I guess, eighteen months, two years, 
um, because I had transitioned from working on chemical weapons, conventional arms control, into nuclear nonproliferation, which was a pretty natural transition. And right as I did that, I started my degree in sustainable energy. So I figured there's going to be natural connections. And when I noticed, um, when I started studying in grad school and also just talking to people in the energy field, um, there was this interesting, I don't know, friction between, oh, the nuclear people, nuclear energy, or um, even weapons, which is even further for the energy people and renewable renewable energy. Um, there is a lot of intersection because of stuff like, you know, this uh, materials, um, as well as they're all housed in the, the same energy, clean energy or um, sustainable energy bucket. But there's definitely sibling rivalries, as I would interpret it, between the likes of renewable and nuclear. Um, it is always fun listening to the Germans talk about nuclear energy. Um, so there's definitely a lot in common, um, but it comes with its fun frictions. Got it. Are there, would you say there's cultural differences between the communities that study one versus the other? I think so. <laughs> um, with nuclear energy, um, I still think there's a little bit of that priesthood mentality, which was it's just homogenous in many of its thoughts and arguments. Um, it's seen as very sort of sacred, and you're, you're always going to have that weapons discussion um, somewhere nearby, which is you know, absolutely understandable and reasonable, um, w which you don't really have with um, other clean, clean energy uh, resources. So April, for people who aren't focused on nuclear proliferation and deterrence, what is the state of play in the summer of 2023? What, what does nuclear threat profiles look like? Where should we be paying attention where we're not, and so forth? Yeah, um, it is definitely heightened more than usual. Um, not much has improved, if anything has improved, uh, on the nuclear threat uh, profile. Um, you've got Russia and Ukraine. Um, you know, people are still j very much concerned about that. Um, then you do have the testing with North Korea. Um, you have you know, China in general, I think is just uneasy when you couple it with um, many of the other concerns between the U.S. and China. Um, so definitely getting worse, <laughs> which I think was accurately um, depicted in the Doomsday Clock announcement earlier this year, where we're closer than ever. Um, Explain what that is. Sure. Um, so, as mentioned in my bio, I was a board fellow for them. The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists was set up by scientists that were working, I believe, at the national labs um, within the Department of Energy. And they wanted something, uh, a artistic mechanism to communicate to the public um, how existential threats were sort of impacting society, how close we were to um, a sort of existential catastrophe. Or calamity. And so they thought of the idea of a clock. And the closer to midnight you are, the closer to um, just a calamity that the society was. And so each year they'll update the time. So this year's um, doomsday clock announcement was for 90 seconds to midnight. And that's the closest, closest it's ever been. And um, when it was announced, it garnered attention from the Kremlin, from um, 
major media uh, sources as well as um, I want to say the United Nations. And so it's definitely grabbing international attention, not just um, from, you know, the masses, but also from global leadership. And so I would say that's accurate. I think we are um, blundering towards catastrophe and, you know, we as a society need to stop and <laughs> and start working together to reverse that. And how... How are those clock assessments made? I mean, I don't need to know the like precise methodology, but is it based on, um, you know, the 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 sheer proliferation of nuclear weapons, or is it based on how much mounting tension there is between countries that represent a nuclear threat? Like, how does that how does that get calculated? Sure. How do people know that we're ninety seconds? Yeah. Like, what does that even mean? Um. So. The clock was originally, um, the methodology, if you will, like you said, keep it simple, um, was focusing on uh, nuclear threats, nuclear war. But as time has passed, um, that also now incorporates climate. It includes um, biological concerns, um, AI, cyber. So it's a gamut of threats. And what they do is the bulletin has a, a group of scientists, uh, the Science and Security Board, that convenes regularly to kind of just talk about what's going on um, in the world in those particular silos. And as the announcement nears, they uh, discuss, okay, like, are we closer to catastrophe? Are we further away? Um, have things improved? Have they worsened? And they really decide, okay, when we convey this to the public, and they really take a lot of time to um, just parse, you know, what does this mean and how do we keep the meaning of it? So it doesn't just seem like, oh, yeah, like, yeah, what does it mean that we're 90 versus 100 seconds? Um, and, you know, how do we convey to the public that this matters? And they determine a time and then they announce it at the beginning of each year. Um, like I said, it's, I've been, invited to watch some of the conversation between them. It is unbelievable. It's kind of like watching the Olympics of some of the most brilliant people um, unpack, you know, how to convey these concerns to society. Um, they genuinely care about, um, the, the, you know, people as well as conveying this message and making sure that uh, people are in tune with what's going on in the world. Got it. I want to zoom in a little bit on uh, on North Korea and the the threat that that North Korea represents. I know earlier this month there was a, a U.S. submarine that was capable of launching you know nuclear ballistic missiles that arrived in South Korea. Um, you know, I think as part of an effort to build additional confidence and trust. Um, you know, with the South Koreans vis-a-vis -vis the, the North Korean threat, but it was taken to be somewhat antagonistic or sort of a, sort of a you know, an affront to North Korea. And there, I know there was some concern that that might, you know, be a bit of a provocation. Where, where do things stand with North Korea? Uh, how should the U.S.'s actions be interpreted in that context, and and where do things go from here? Um, so when it comes to North Korea, 
Um, yeah, you have to navigate very delicately, unfortunately. I say unfortunately because it's not a, a matter of just uh, dialogue or can we sign this paper? They've kind of demonstrated they're going to do what they're going to do. Um, and to look at it from their neighbor's perspective, um, you know, th- that it's, it's a real threat. It's a real um, thing to be concerned about. So you can't just say, oh, they're, you know, um, just saber rattling or, or they're just trying to, to fear monger. No, it's an actual threat. I think this is where the value of working with China um, is uh, heightened. It's important because, um, you know, this is of equal concern to China as it should be to the United States. And when we think of the United States, we think of continental You know, this also includes Guam, this includes um, Hawaii, but also, you know, allies and partners, um, including the Philippines. You know, uh, they have vested interest as well. Um, Kind of thinking from my perspective and, you know, yes, there's the the strategy, there's the, the players, the actors, the institutions, but I also tend to think these are also people. I know that one of my friends and colleagues um, was in Hawaii when the nuclear false alarm went off. And I've heard this story from multiple perspectives on, from people who were in Hawaii. But I believe this person was on duty um, in a military capacity. And they talked about, oh, this like this is something that we actually have to work through. And they were processing, I, I can't believe this is happening. And, and the horror of it, they could not articulate it. And there were people, you know, throwing children into um, uh, manholes and um, some were just kind of paralyzed. And, you know, you had some of the military, they had to act and and start putting things into place. And so to think about that of, you know, there are people doing all these things that we have to look at the, you know, North Korean provocations very seriously and um, understand, you know, even if it's just testing, and I don't, I don't even like saying just testing. Um, there are real ramifications if something even goes sideways inadvertently. So I'm concerned. Um, I don't know if that really amounts to any um, insightful opinion, but uh, what are what are the U.S.'s options, right? Especially when it's a state that we don't have any sort of diplomatic relationship with. Like what? Yeah, like what would you recommend that the that the Biden administration or Congress, you know, do? You know, I, I think the administration is doing the best they can. And I'm also someone I try to look at, okay, you know, these are humans making decisions with the best knowledge they have. So I'm almost willing to extend this to any administration. Um, but I, this is an an area or a subject where I tend to think you can't just go in and extract the problem <laughs> um, like like a, a tooth. You're going to have to leverage your relationships, particularly in Asia. Um, this is an area where we need to demonstrate, yeah, the United States is not looking to be the, the world hero, um, that we're going to leverage the relationships we have, particularly in the region, to navigate this, because I feel like we're going to have to. Um, and I know that they're building up relationship 
with the Philippines, um, their, um, you, you know, deepening relations with Japan and South Korea. I think that's smart. Um, and <laughs> it, there's, there's so many, um, even, I don't know, uh, side factors that they, the United States has to look at that this is not something that you can just go in and, um, take care of, un unfortunately. Um, you can't just exclude, uh, excuse me, North Korea. You're going to have to leverage the relationships of the people in that region. Now, as of pretty recently, a, a U.S. soldier um, uh, seems to have, you know, kind of willfully crossed the border and now is in uh, North, North Korean uh, detention. Uh, does that change anything here or um, or is that just another you know, piece of leverage that the North Koreans have um, when it comes to managing all of these threats and relationships? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I definitely think it's concerning enough in the calculus that now you, you not only do you have another American, you have a soldier. Um, and the Secretary of the Army's comments from the Security Forum are fantastic on this. Um that, yeah, you have to navigate very delicately. I would say even more now that you have this situation going on um, because I don't see why North Korea wouldn't use this um, issue to get what they want as, like you said, leverage. Um, I have read a, a couple stories of people who um, have you know, either been in North Korean camps or um, have been captured by North Koreans. And they're always horrific. And so it is deeply concerning. And I do anticipate this will um, impact elements of the nuclear relationship, maybe not directly, but in some form. I know part of your background and experience is around arms control implementation and verification. I assume that also maybe includes monitoring efforts. For people who aren't familiar with what that process looks, looks like, can you walk us through it? Oh, yeah, sure. So um, a lot of my stuff was starting with a legally binding treaty. The difference between legally binding and politically binding legally goes through Senate confirmation. And once that happens, that means it is law and we actually have to implement the measures of the treaty as agreed by, by con Congress and signed off on internationally. Um, politically binding, it's sort of like a global handshake, which it's a little more than that, but so yeah, once um, the treaty has gone through Senate confirmation, we'll start staffing up the offices, and oftentimes we will have to acquire the right technologies and equipment, um, find the people who can help. There's usually inspectors, um, there's data collection that's involved, so we'll have to find the people and the sources of that information, and we'll also provide overseas support to the governing body of those treaties. And it isn't necessarily organized on the start, but once that's kick-started from there, um, there are usually measures within each treaty of, okay, what does it mean to verify? What does it mean to implement? And the process is usually really well spelled out. And if it's not, it's not by design. It's because um, the countries couldn't come to an agreement within those treaties. So, you know, 
those measures could be inspections where you're going to facilities and looking at different types of weapon systems. Um, or if it's a disarmament treaty, looking at making sure the numbers that were um, recorded and submitted to the governing body are what's actually true on the ground. Um, I did a lot of work with the laboratories and making sure that the laboratories were in compliance with the uh, respective treaties. Um, there's also the monitoring aspect, the Treaty on Open Skies. That one was um, oddly fun in the sense that it was kicked off by you would get a notification. The government would get a not notification saying um, in particular that the Russians would like to fly over the country and uh, take aerial footage of their flight path. And I believe we had no right of refusal, which basically means we have to accept it and we would negotiate the flight path. And then they would arrive. And on the U.S. side, we would jump on the phone and call everybody in uh, military. And we would say, basically, the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming. And they would prepare as uh, our protocol required. And we would wait for the Russians to come. And once they would do that, we would fly them on their flight path and very strict protocol as far as interacting with them, as far as what they could and could not do. And then once they were done. Can you explain when you say like the Russians are coming, like they're, the, you, you mean like they are inspecting the U.S.? Is that what's happening yes. here? So the treaty, that okay. was what was the. So like we are inspecting other countries to make sure, to make sure they're in compliance, but then other countries yes. are also inspecting the United yes. States to make sure that we are also holding up our end of the bargain. Yes. Okay. Got and it. I Continue. primarily focused on U.S. implementation. Um, so in, in the case of tre Treaty on Open Skies, yes, it would be the Russians that came and conduct the overflights. And then once they were done, they would head back um, with their aerial footage. And the U.S. could do the same to Russia. For the Chemical Weapons Convention, you had... Um, Inspectors from the governing body, the pro, uh, Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, that the inspectors would come, they'd go to a facility, uh, d depending on where the munitions were, and inspect it to make sure, one, that you're actually destroying the weapons, but two, that you weren't um, creating more or testing beyond appropriate um, or doing anything with chemical agents that... Um, would be out of compliance with the treaty. Got it. Okay. And so, um, so, so that's, that's how it works when it's a treaty that I guess is enacted by like, you know, the U S Congress. Um, when is it that like UN inspectors are involved? Is that a different type of treaty? Is that only for certain countries? So I only recall that, uh, in my experience, being with, uh, no, I take that back. There's uh, United Nations Transparency in Arms, which is more of a data exchange and um, reporting. And you would send that information. We'd collect the information from each of the countries within their governments, send it to the United Nations. Um, and it was for transparency purposes. Um, and then they would also do special missions. So... With the Syria chemical weapons destruction, there was a lot of UN involvement. 
Um, but there was also a lot of OPCW, which is the chemical weapons governing body involvement as well. So they worked in tandem. So I would say definitely special cases, but there are a few data exchanges within the United Nations as well. Got it. And, uh, and so what is the, what's the, the current status of the nuclear threat vis-a-vis Russia? Russia has come up a couple times in this conversation, but, uh, but step back for a second. You know, obviously there's the ongoing war with Ukraine. Um, how does nuclear war, the threat of nuclear war figure into that equation? Um, I mean, I'm concerned, very concerned. Um, because, you know, Putin has alluded to it in, in vague terms and that's enough to, um, you know, cause concern. Um, as far as, you know, how close, uh, I'm reluctant to try to ascribe a, a quantity or a descriptor to it other than, um, enough where yes, more direct U.S., um, engagement or NATO engagement, I should say, um, in supporting Ukraine is, is necessary. Um, I don't necessarily think that means sending NATO soldiers over. I'm, I'm not saying that at all. Um, but, um, I, yeah, I, I think it's one where it's absolutely, uh, within the realm of possibility. I don't know if I could describe a probability to it. That makes sense. And what about Iran? I feel like for so long, the conversation about about nuclear risk always came back to Iran. And um, obviously, once the, the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, devolved, um, it, it seemed, at least to me, like there was very little hope for reviving some sort of agreement with Iran. Is that your assessment, or where, where do things stand? Um yeah, I would say that is my assessment as far as we have, we don't have a, an uphill climb. We have like, um, you know, a full blown rock climbing on a cliff effort with, uh, Iran. And I don't think that has anything to do with the, you know, U.S. officials right now who are, you know, working that. Um, I think it was foolish that we pulled out, but that's where we're at. Um, so with that, yeah, it's going to take a Herculean feat to, you know, make up for what we've lost um, from leaving that agreement. Um, and I do think, you know, the the war in Ukraine complicates matters. Do you think that we should be upping sanctions on Iran or, or you know, using other, other levers to try to exert pressure? Um, it's a good question. I can't say I know. Um, I'm not sure sanctions will necessarily help at this point, but that's also not my expertise. Um, I think, uh, you know, people tend to rely too much on sanctions because in a situation like this, you're trying to figure out what else will work. Um, but I don't think that's a problem with sanctions in general. I just think that um, we're in a very, you know, dicey predicament. Um, as for how do we navigate moving forward. I got to be honest when I say I don't know. Yeah, I thought it was interesting um, that Secretary of State Tony Blinken recently in an interview, um, you know, effectively said that 
you know, there's been some developments on Iran, but they're they're essentially admitted that they're they weren't, you know, making a ton of progress, yeah. or at least right now. Um, and that it, it really wasn't sort of meeting the U.S.'s security interests. Well, I think so I would say that doesn't seem promising. Yeah, and I think this is one area where if bipartisanship has looked more important than ever, it's something like this. Not in, not just a matter of, well, we just need to come to an agreement. Well, obviously. Um, but we need to continue just talking with um, people we don't agree with at the simplest um, level because, um, you know, the ramifications of one administration carry over into another. And, um, you know, if we want to have a coherent foreign policy or if we want, you know, to maintain the, the level of leadership that we've had as a country, we've got to keep those communication channels open and um, as respectful as possible. And I say that full well knowing like that is really, really hard, probably in both directions. Um, and I, I think if anything, it reinforces the issues we need to address at home, because if we can't address them at home, they're going to carry over like they did with the JCPOA. What do you mean by issues at home? Um, the um, the bipartisan polarization. Um, ah, it, I see. I, it's one thing to disagree. I think that's what makes our you know our govern governance system very special. Um, at the same time, it seems like we're getting to the point where we're not even listening to other the other side. Um, and part of that I can understand because there um, are times where things get so extreme that to entertain it is to dignify it. <laughs> um, but we need to determine what is that threshold where we are willing to listen to each other um, because there are much bigger issues um, that we need to address and put our differences aside. Um, maybe that's even the wrong language, you know, uh, find a way to <laughs> incorporate all the differences. If that's even possible, I don't know. But we definitely need to address the the polarization. So one country that, that you and I have not talked a whole lot about, but was really, I would say, front and center at the Security Forum last week um, was China. Um, and uh, And we, you know, I think there was a lot of discussion about China vis-a-vis AI, China vis-a-vis Taiwan, um, but also I think a little bit of discussion around um, around nuclear policy in China. So, so tell us a little bit about what um, what that looks like right now. Um, I, you know, I feel like China isn't typically the first country that we think of when we think about nuclear threats. Um, but uh, but China's nuclear arsenal has been growing, isn't that right? Um. On the one hand, I you know, with the relationship between U.S. and the Soviet Union with the nuclear relationship, it was very much a bilateral. China, you're not going to have that as much. You're going to have to do a bilateral, but it's also going to have to be multilateral. Um, and so you have to build a relationship in the context of other nuclear weapons states, which wasn't so much the case with the Soviet Union. Um, so yes, you can't just say, okay, I want to have a treaty just with China or, 
you know, even I think it was the Trump administration who had mentioned like, um, uh, I think it was New Start being amongst Russia, China and the U.S. Um, and because of that, um, I think we're going to have to start from square one of just having the dialogue. Um, that was something I thought the Biden administration was looking at towards the beginning of their um, tenure. Um, and I'm not sure where that's at right now, but it's very much at the dialogue level. Um, and I think that's a great p- place to start. I understand that's a bit of a non-answer. Um, but, um, you know, remember a lot of the treaties that between the U.S. and Russia or even the multilateral treaties like the Chemical Weapons Convention took decades. Um, so if we're really kind of just starting the dialogue now, um, we'll say within the past 10 years, don't be shocked if it takes a while to really come to a formal or legal agreement, um, because that's what it took um, between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. I have more of a big picture question here. You know, when I think about nuclear policy, obviously, at least for me, the first thing that I think of is like the Cold War. And in many ways, you know, it's a issue and a threat that we've been talking about now for many decades. And I find myself wondering whether today's generation of international relations students are all that interested in nuclear policy or if they sort of feel like this is like the national security of their parents and grandparents. And, you know, I have no idea what the stats are on number of students that are enrolling in programs that are sort of aimed at nuclear policy. Um, but my own instinct would be that maybe it's declined over time as people become interested in other geopolitical threats and other dynamics. So I'd love to hear you know, as a young person who's studying in in this area, what, you know, what attracted you to the space, but also what you've observed among the interest of your peers in this domain? Sure. So I think that uh, there was disinterest in nuclear policy or nuclear weapons policy in the 90s, early 2000s, and really as I started into the workforce right around 2010-ish. And um, as the issue with Russia grew, um, and then over just, we'll just say the past five years, um, you're seeing that uptick again in interest um, at a, a young younger age, we'll just say entry level. Um, the National Nuclear Security Administration um, has a fellowship and the demand signal is there as far as people wanting to get into the field. Um, I would say it has definitely broadened the interest from not just nuclear weapons policy, but also um, what is more my domain of um, nuclear energy security and in terms of whether it be material security or nuclear incident response. Um, and so you're getting a newer iteration of nuclear policy of what does nuclear weapons policy look like in an age when we're, you know, also looking at an uptick or potential uptick in um, nuclear energy. Um, so I definitely think it's uh, resurfaced or it's it's now um, gaining momentum at the university level. Um, for me, yeah, it was not on my radar and it would not have been on my radar um, in undergraduate 
again, I was more just interested in um, treaties in general and the international uh, mechanisms to just get anything done. So I wasn't even particularly interested in weapon systems. Um, but I think as you're seeing all these global issues kind of converge on each other, um, that it's not just a climate issue, it's not just an energy issue, it's not just a um, nuclear weapons or catastrophe issue, it's not just an AI issue, but they're all kind of converging into this just messy um, environment, I think is intriguing to frankly, everyone, because when I tell them what I, <laughs> anyone what I do, it always kind of perks up their ears. Um, so I think the interest is resurfacing. It's just kind of more more suitable to, the, to today as well as the environment we're in. Yeah, I also wonder if, um, you know, there, there's sort of like a newfound cultural fascination with the subject. I mean, I, I even think about, um, you know, sort of portrayals in entertainment and media. A couple years ago, there was uh, the miniseries Chernobyl um, that, you know, got a, a ton of, you know, sort of praise and accolades. Um, really, really good show, really scary, but really good, which was about, an, obviously, a, um, the Chernobyl uh, nuclear uh, disaster. Um, but also, you know, um, Oppenheimer just came out very recently. Um, it tells the story of the father of the atomic bomb. Um, do you, am, am I right about that? Is that like, you know, I'm cherry picking some examples here? Or would you say that there is kind of a, a, a an interest among um, storytellers when it comes to revisiting some of these stories around, around nuclear war and nuclear power? Yeah, I definitely think, um, as you put it, storytellers, um, creatives even, um, are revisiting the Cold War. They're revisiting um, nuclear, you know, our history with nuclear weapons. Um, I think Oppenheimer is a perfect example of that or even a bit of a culmination of that. Um, and they have a very, very important role. So that is encouraging to see because they're taking something that is often seen as inaccessible um, given the, the depth of the conversation at the scientific level, as well as the policy level, um, it is very difficult to just understand in one conversation to bring in the creatives, present it. Um, I think most people in the field, if not all are, uh, pleased to see that there is some kind of engagement, um, because that forces our, you know, the people in the co our country to, to talk about these matters. Um, I know that one of the things that I think of when I hear about Oppenheimer is how many of my bosses um, talk about the thing that got them into the field was a, I think it was a movie or it was like a made for TV movie called, um, I think it was The Day After. And it was a movie that was uh the premise of the movie was um, what the day after a nuclear uh, bomb hitting the United States, and I think it was Kansas, would look like. And um, that movie uh, sort of called so many people into the field um, because they basically watched and said, I don't want this to happen to my country. 
And I'm not saying that Oppenheimer will necessarily do that, but to know that there are movies out like a Chernobyl um, series as well as this, and I think there might be a few other um, Apple TV-esque movie uh, series where um, it's not about nuclear weapons, but it's the Cold War and it um, really works in the tension of that time. I think Tetris may have been one of those movies. I can't remember. But um, I think that helps people understand what kind of environment we're in and how important it is for them to be engaged in the conversation. So I'm excited to see it. It's not just out, out of some like dark sense of belonging, like, ha, now I feel like, you know, I matter. It's not that at all. Um, I think it's a way for the average person to understand what's going on. Yeah, no, I think it speaks to the power of, uh, you know, of good movies, of good film, of good TV to really, um, you know, perhaps inspire and, and motivate potentially a whole generation of people around a topic. So that's really interesting to hear by your colleagues. Um, why don't we shift into our final? Yeah, <laughs> the, right. That's a good. We'll we'll note that the day after tomorrow. Um, why don't we shift into our final segment um, where we both share something that we're following? Um, I'm happy to go first. I uh, just returned recently from a trip to Israel, and so one of the topics that I've been following is the uh, protests uh, that have really sort of taken the the country by storm. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the current government, um, of Prime Minister Netanyahu is set to adopt a whole set of judicial reforms that would really limit the power of the judiciary. And there has been really, uh, widespread backlash, um, to those changes. Um, young people, but I would say, you know, sort of multi-generational, um, crowds have been turning out. Uh, to, you know, express their, their, um, you know, their, their opposition to those reforms. Um, and it in many ways seems to be a real, uh, sort of moment of, um, of both political tension, but also, um, democracy at action, in action for Israel. So, um, you know, we, we have to wait to see how that evolves over time, but that is a story that I have been following closely. April, what are you following right now? Yeah, I'm following two things. Um, because I'm in the midst of grad school and, you know, work is heavy by nature, <laughs> mine are definitely more uh, lighthearted, and that is the Barbenheimer um, debate. Which one's going to be successful? It kind of looks like Barbie's taking on uh, the lead, but just seeing even something like that, the lighthearted controversy, controversies um is just neat and it's fun and i've loved all the memes um and seeing people take an active interest in the movie oppenheimer um granted yeah made by a fantastic director um so that's one and then also just the rollout of the 2024 jeep wrangler something light and keeps me awesome. another day no believe me i i should have mentioned barbie also because i'm going to see barbie tonight so um <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully Oppenheimer later in yeah. the week so i'm with you there and with that thank you for joining us april next in foreign policy is produced in cooperation with foreign policy for america's next gen initiative and is a proud member of the dsr network 
Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find the show. You can follow me online at Z Weinberg, April at April C. Arnold. If you're a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. And with that, join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.